Let's turn again back to Hebrews chapter 3, and we'll just spend uh, a short while, Lord willing, this afternoon finishing up our message, exhorting one another. So we'll capture the first word of verse 7, and then go to verse 12 again. Wherefore, take heed, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Because we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence firm unto the end. Exhorting one another. So we first considered the progression of a hard heart. What does the Bible, or what does this letter in particular say that that looks like? And we looked at different steps of how this hardening, this evil, unbelieving, hard heart departs from God because ultimately sin is our problem, the seduction of sin. And then we looked at the generation that the writer calls their fathers and how they tempted, proved, and provoked God by demanding that God act on the basis of their own desires, rather than shaping themselves after God's revelation of Himself. And so we saw that in the Israelites of old. Now, we look at the means to prevent hardening, which obviously you see now is exhortation. So the transition, but, points back to the prevention of an unbelieving, evil heart that departs from God. So, how is it that we prevent that? We prevent it one another by exhortation. God is using your word, which are the words of the Holy Spirit, when we're using His word, as we speak those words to one another, God then is using that as a preventative measure to keep us from an evil unbelieving, hardened heart that is departing from God because of the seduction of sin. So you can see how the one anothering in the Bible has a critical place in the family of God. I mean, God just didn't willy-nilly throw it in there and say, well, this seems like a good thing for these people. We'll just let them do this while they live out their time on earth. No, the necessity of exhortation is as necessary as not departing from the living God. Now, God has various means. We don't limit God to say, well, this is the only means He uses to keep from a hardening heart. But very clearly here, the writer tells us, God speaking through His pen, that exhortation is God's means of preventing this hardening. And why do we need exhortation? Because, beloved, I am still blind to some degree to my own sin. And you are too. We're blind. We need one another to speak truth into one another's lives. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, But speaking the truth in love, we grow up into Him, and we become a body that's building itself in love. By what? Speaking and exhorting one another in the truth of God. It is critical, it is necessary, that we do this as a church. And I know that you do. So I'm encouraging you in that pathway to both do it and avail yourselves to exhortation. 
Every time sin is a part of our lives, which is a regular routine thing, we always have one of two directions we can go. In our blindness, we shut out the exhortation. We tell all the reasons why the person saying what they're saying is actually not true. You don't understand. You don't get it. That's not what I was doing. And so we defend ourselves and we come under a kind of way of thinking where we're going to declare ourselves to be right, we're going to justify ourselves, we're going to tell all the reasons why you're not right concerning what you see in me. But all the while God says we need one another because you can see something about me that I can't see and I can see something about you that you can't see. And particularly in our closer relationships like marriage and family, and then church life together, we are going to see things that are not so readily visible in ourselves. And so God says, we need the ministry one to another of exhortations. Romans chapter 12 says it's actually a spiritual gift. And I would, I would hasten to say that that gift is probably wide and largely found in most people. It's a broad wide a gift that I think many of God's people have. And even if you say, well, I don't think I do, well, you're not off the hook because this is imperative mood. The two commands in this verse or verses are, take heed, beware, God commands it, and then be ye exhorting one another. That's God's command because we need to exhort one another. The other thing I can do through the ministry of exhortation to one another is I can receive what you say about myself. I can receive it. Yes, for my wife, and if need be for my children when they see something, or from one another, or from your husband, as we exhort one another, we are receiving, we are going on record to say, I'm going to receive what is being said about me because I cannot see myself fully as I am. And in that condition, I'm likely going to do more defending than receiving, okay? So the word itself simply means to encourage, to comfort. It's a multifaceted word. It means to warn, to admonish, to comfort, to console, to support, to encourage, to strengthen. And of course the task is, as we exhort one another, is to know which of those and and which way to go at any given time. But two things we often, I think, overlook when it comes to exhortation is, one, that we wait until the hardening is set in. Say, yeah, Brother Mike, I don't think he's doing well. I mean, he, he hasn't been in church in a month. So we need, to, we need to exhort him. And of course, that would be appropriate. But if that's the first time I'm receiving exhortation, there's a problem. Notice the frequency. Daily. While it is today. Daily. This is a preventative measure. See, if this is happening, in all likelihood, the hardening never takes place. If it's not happening, what's going to happen? The hardening begins to take place. So yes, if I'm not doing well, uh, I need to be exhorted. But that's more likely an issue of restoration, isn't it? We saw that in Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fall, he's captured, he's trapped. You which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So yes, that that can involve exhortation, but now that's a restoration project. We need to rescue this person. Exhortation is more often encouragement, where you're going to stir someone to a certain activity. 
you're going to encourage them to a certain thing. And what is the activity that we could pinpoint in this book, which there are many? It might be Hebrews 12.1, that we keep running the race with patience, looking to Jesus. So we're going to exhort, we're going to stir, we're going to encourage one another to keep looking to Jesus, to keep running the race, even though there's weights and there's sin that so easily besets us as a community of believers, we are exhorting one another to the final goal. We are exhorting to that end. The second thing we need to understand about the frequency is that we need to avail ourselves to exhortation. See? Be intentional first about exhorting, but be intentional about availing yourself to the exhortation in the body. Do you have someone you can connect with here? Someone that you can talk to and that can exhort you and you exhort them? Is there anybody that you have a relationship with that you can regularly exhort and encourage just through regular fellowship? See, that's how it takes place. That's largely what our fellowship groups are for. That's not because you people don't have anything to do. It's because that's a context to learn together and to exhort one another and to encourage one another. And so that's just taking place there. It takes place over lunch. It takes place after church. Avail yourselves to the exhortation because if we don't take heed and if we don't receive exhortation and give it, and we become isolated from exhortation, and we become an island from exhortation, what happens according to the writer? Hardening begins to set in. What other reason would God command us to do this except for the reason that He stated? Lest, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So be exhorting one another and encouraging one another and stirring one another up to keep running the race that is set before you. I think of this when we think of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 5. Daniel, when speaking to his son, Belshazzar, he's about to be judged and deposed from his kingdom. He saw the handwriting on the wall. Daniel, being the great interpreter of God, interprets the vision. And then he says, Remember your father, who was lifted up in his heart, and his mind was hardened with pride. What happened to King Nebi? His mind hardened in pride. If you go back to Daniel chapter 4, he received the troubling vision. He goes to Daniel, his interpreter. He knows that Daniel has the spirit of the gods, plural. At least he recognizes something different. He had already promoted Daniel and Daniel chapter 2 for interpreting his dream that he told no one, and he heaped praise upon Daniel. Daniel was a man of his confidence. So Daniel comes and interprets the vision and says, O king, this is what you need to do. Break off thy sins by righteousness and thy iniquity by showing mercy to the poor that the lengthening of thy tranquility may take place. Next two verses. After twelve months... How did the king's heart grow hard? The lapse of time. He didn't give thought to what Daniel said. He didn't receive the exhortation. He didn't avail himself to the exhortation. He didn't give it any thought. And then he's standing one day and says, Is this not the kingdom that I've built for my glory and my majesty? And a voice came from heaven 
And what happened? The vision was fulfilled, just as God said it would be. In a similar way, beloved, if we do not avail ourselves to exhortation in all that God says that we are to be to one another beyond a Sunday morning sermon, in some way gradually, our hearts will grow hardened, slowly, slowly moving away from God rather than being drawn in to God. And so God demands that we participate in some way, somehow, outside of this service, intentionally obeying the command to exhort one another. All right, look at Hebrews chapter 10, where this word is used again, and we'll see what the writer says here about exhorting one another. Here he is encouraging the fainting saints. They're growing weary. Hebrews chapter 12, lest you go weary and faint in your minds, because that's what was happening. They're they're growing weary and faint. So he says in verse 22, notice three times he uses the two words, let us. That's a community of believers called the church, where they're to join and band together as soldiers of the cross of Jesus Christ, and they are to be something to one another. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's the language of Ezekiel 36. The figure's there. He puts a new heart in, takes out the heart of stone. We've been washed, and our baptism is the picture of that pure washing that has taken place in the soul. We've been purified by faith in Jesus Christ, and the picture of that is going in the watery grave of baptism and coming out a new creature in Christ. That new creature already having taken place, but yet now a commitment to walk in newness of life. That commitment of baptism is a commitment to exhort and to let us do what the Bible says we're to do together. Verse 23, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Now wavering here doesn't mean you ever have doubts and struggles, it means a wavering that does what? Turns us away from God. And then this parenthetical expression, because He is faithful that promised. How could you possibly hope that you could hold fast your profession, what you professed about the apostle and high priest of your profession, Hebrews 3.1, Hebrews 3.1, how could you possibly do that without wavering except that God promised you something? He promised to be faithful to you. He promised to hold you. He promised to keep you. So the fulfillment to hold fast is based on God's fulfillment of what He said He would do for you. That gives us a, a soft pillow to lay our head on at night. God has promised, one with Himself I cannot die. There is no possible way a believer can die spiritually or eternally. He was already dead spiritually. Already completely and totally dead spiritually. God made him alive. You cannot be severed from union with Christ. So, on that basis, let us hold fast our profession. Verse 24. Here's the third one. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. 
The word consider means I'm going to regard and think about my brothers and sisters and I want to stir them to love and to good works. How does that happen? Two ways. First, again, the negative. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. See, if, if we do that, there's no love there. See? If I forsake the gathering, I'm going to be a discouragement to you. You're going to be a discouragement to me. That's not love. I'm not thinking about you. I'm just thinking about myself. So the negative side, if I'm going to consider you, if we're going to consider one another to stir one another up to love and to good deeds, the first thing I'm going to do to fulfill that is I'm not going to forsake the assembling. Now the word forsake doesn't mean I'm never going to miss. I'm not forsaking it. And the assembling again must be more than Sunday morning service because of the next way we stir one another up, which is the positive now. Negatively, not forsaking. Positively, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. How do we think to stir one another up to love and to good works? We're going to exhort one another in that way. We're going to encourage one another as it relates to God's promises, God's glory, God's name. And we're going to stir one another to keep walking the pathway of holiness which is love and good works. All right? As you see the day approaching. Now, the approaching here in the book of Hebrews is a bit different because the word means near. Right? That cannot be the second bodily return of Jesus Christ. That was not near and that was understood by the apostles according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You should not be shaken in mind as if that day is near. Because Paul knew it was not near. The day that was approaching for this day, according to Hebrews 8 in the last verse, is the day of the total destruction of the Mosaic Age. From the temple, to the sacrifices, to the priesthood, and Jerusalem itself would be ransacked. For the Jewish Christian, that was going to be a very difficult day. Because it was a day of persecution. That's the day approaching, very specifically, in Hebrews Because these are Jewish people he's writing to. The need for exhortation is heightened in the day of trial. And that's how we apply it to us. We're living in a day where trials are increasing. Difficulties and challenges are increasing. Exhortation is designed to keep us under the pressures of trials and persecution and difficulty from what? Departing from the living God, but rather keep running the race, looking to Jesus. So our exhortation has meaning and value because God is using it not only to keep us from a hardening heart, but also to keep us from a departure from God, even a quick departure. And so how does that happen? Exhorting, encouraging, supporting, strengthening, using God's Word as the means of just sharing it in our assembling together so that we're fortifying one another for any day that's approaching us that may be an evil day, a day of trial, a day of pain, a day of sorrow. Now just think of some of the promises that are designed to do that in the book of Hebrews. 
the promises or the reality of Hebrews 1 that we looked at. Jesus Christ sat down on the right hand of God. Your sins are purged. Your sins are purged. Nothing can change that. No trial, no persecution, no suffering, no pain. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus is upholding all things by the word of His power, which means the very things that are touching your life that are so painful. Whatever it is this afternoon, whatever you're facing tomorrow, whatever's touching your life that's giving you grief and pain and heartache, He's upholding and sustaining everything by the word of his own power for his holy purposes and it's always good for you without exception it will always be good for you that love and trust Jesus that's encouraging would you be ready to exhort someone just maybe with the fact that God is over it God is over it don't need a theological discourse don't even need, need to quote the verse exactly as long as you're getting the, 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 the uh, gist of the verse. You know, God is over this. He's over for good. He loves you and He is training you. Hebrews chapter 12. If you have forgotten the exhortation that speaketh unto you as children, then you remind them of the exhortation because you're to exhort one another. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Don't think little of it, nor faint when thou art rebuked of Him. I feel like fainting. I'm having so much difficulty. Doesn't God care? Doesn't even know? I mean, I used to believe these things, but I'm just not sure. And and, and you're taking that in. And then you finish the verse. For whom the Lord loveth, He's chastening and scourging every single son He receives. And then you say, Oh, dear brother, dear sister, if you're not being trained by God, You're a bastard. You're an illegitimate child. You don't have a father. What an exhortation. What strengthening. What encouragement when we receive God's word. He does love me. In fact, the proof of His love, according to Hebrews 12, is that He's training me. He's disciplining me. Just like the proof of a parent's love is what? They are doing a little spanking along the way, right? Proverbs. If you spare the rod, you hate the child. Even a child instinctively knows that when they're left to themselves to do just whatever they want, instinctively they know, they don't love me. They just let me do what I want. And if God lets you do what you want and have your way, He just gives you over to a reprobate mind, He does not love you, beloved. That's a promise. Or, or Hebrews 2, He is able to succor those Through His suffering, He's able to help. He's able to aid you. Or Hebrews 4.16, You don't have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of your weaknesses, infirmities. He is touched by it. Because in all points He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He went through through the height of trial so that He could understand and know and sympathize with your weaknesses and your pain. What encouragement that is. So let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may find the mercy and the grace to help us in a time of need. And how does it come? Through the high priest who suffered worse than we will ever suffer and bore the wrath of God on our behalf.
Hebrews chapter 6, he, he promised by two immutable things which God that cannot lie promised. He confirmed it by an oath to give you a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before you. God says that that's enough. He said, I'm going to confirm that with an oath. I'm going to swear to it. But why would you do that, God? You don't need to. I'm going to give my people even a stronger consolation because of in their weakness at times, I'm going to show them that by two unchangeable things, it's impossible. It is impossible. It was already impossible. And so what, what does God want you to do to that? Run and lay hold upon the hope that is set for you. And let that hope be an anchor of your soul. Hebrews 7.25, He ever lives to make intercession for you. Jesus, what do you live for? I live for these people. I live to make intercession for them. It is my joy to keep bringing them before the throne of my Father. Hebrews chapter 8, I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will write my laws in their heart and their minds. And they shall continue in my covenant by grace. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. God says, I'm your God and nothing's going to change that. Well, can my sin change it? No. Nothing will change the fact that He is your God and He's your God forever. And you are His people. Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, the Old Testament saints were sustained by the grace of God. And that's what the writer wants to bring before these people. How is it that they kept running and they kept moving with all the trials and the obstacles and the challenges that we see for Moses and Abraham and Noah and the saints of old? Grace came through faith. And they kept running. The writer's saying, we have been encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. And what are they saying to you? They're like in a stadium. You ever been to a ball game? It's great atmosphere. People are yelling. You know, imagine those guys on the court. They're like, you know, sometimes they'll say, "Cheer! We need, we need help! Cheer!" All the Old Testament saints are surrounding you in Scripture, cheering you on. What are they saying? Look to the grace of God. It's available. It's sufficient. Trust Him, and keep running. Keep driving. Keep shooting. Keep blocking. Keep going. Hebrews 13. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, and here's the basis for being content. How are you going to be content with such things as you have? Right now, you're probably missing a lot of things that you want to happen that are not happening. God says, I want you to be content right now. Not tomorrow when all that happens. Right? Whatever you have right here, right now, how are you going to be content with that? Because He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I pointed out several times, there's five negatives. It's captured in the psalm. I think it's William Cooper. I may be wrong. I will never, no, never, no, never leave you or forsake you. How strong is that? You might even say that to one another. Brother, I just want to encourage you. Here's what God says. He will never, no, never, no, never leave you 
That, that gives me confidence. That's what I need. That's what you need. That's the promises, some of which we are to use to encourage and to exhort one another to press on to the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And now finally, look at we're exhorting one another to prevent hardening of the arteries of the heart called faith. The reason we do that is in verse 14. Because. Why do you want to do that? Why do you want to prevent this hardening? Because we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence firmly, steadfastly, unto the end. The end of what? The end of your life. The end. So two things here. One, I want to look at the verb, ginomai. You are made sharers of Christ. And then secondly, what is the beginning of your confidence? And we don't have to guess that in this book. He's going to tell us what the beginning of their confidence is, or was, and that's more than likely going to be the beginning of your confidence. Ginomai is a perfect tense verb. You know. You know that's my favorite tense, right? The perfect tense means what has already been completed and done will never happen again. As a believer, you are sharers of Christ. Nothing will ever, ever change that. It cannot. It will not. God has promised. We are, have been in the past, once for all, completely done, finished. Never going to need to be repeated again. But you know the perfect tense means there's ongoing results of the completed action, which is the basis of the reason of verse 14. Christ has captured us and arrested our souls. The result of that is you hold fast. That's why it says, if you hold the beginning of your confidence steadfast to the end, because guess what? The believer will hold on his way. His faith cannot fail. It's done. It's over. It's complete. The ongoing result of Christ holding you is that you keep holding. The assurance that this completed action has genuinely happened in my life is that I don't totally or completely abandon the true and living God because He will not totally or completely abandon me. He will not. Hebrews 10.14 For by one offering He has perfected forever perfect tense again those that are what? Being sanctified. The pathway of holiness is not prerequisite for being perfected or for being made a sharer in Christ. It is the fruit of having been made a partaker of Christ and being united to Jesus by faith. So my assurance and your assurance this morning of reaching heaven's glory is not that if I sin willfully, after I've received the knowledge of the truth, Hebrews 10.26, it doesn't matter. See, a, a willful turning from God 
means a total, complete abandonment and a willful getting on the pathway of transgression, staying there and enjoying the pathway that is against God. If we sin willfully like that, after we've received the knowledge of the supremacy of Christ, what else can be done? What other sacrifice can you turn to? There's no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking of the judgment of God and fiery indignation that will devour the adversaries. In other words, beloved, if I tomorrow sin willfully and depart from the living God and I stay there, I stay there till I die. And God says to me, look, the people in that camp are going to be judged by me and I'm going to devour them with my wrath. And I go get in that camp and I join them and I stay with them and I love them and I be with them. Guess what's going to happen to me? I will be devoured by the wrath of God eternally and forever. That's what that means. But that can't happen to those that have been made partakers. And the way we know we've been made partakers is not because we never sin, right? If that's true, shut this book and I'm out of here. I'll prove tomorrow, maybe even today, that I still sin and you do too. No, there's a difference in a falling away willfully in a total abandonment of Jesus Christ, the dog going back to the vomit and the pig going back to the mud than a child of God who falls in the mud and feels the mud and struggles with mud and hates the mud. Right? That's a huge difference. So the verb tells us, this is not Paul or the writer of Hebrews saying, look, you know, if you don't hold on, you're going to lose something. No. It's finished. It's done. Your sins have been pardoned. The fruit of that is now we're holding on our way. The Holy Spirit's holding us. God is holding us through faith. Okay. Now let's look at the beginning of the confidence. Turn to Hebrews 10. The writer is going to look back to their former time when they were converted. He's going to go back to the day of their conversion and the beginning of their confidence. Because the writer's pointing that and says, look, hold on to that beginning. Hold on to that confidence. And whatever that confidence is in Christ, whatever that experience is, that's going to sustain you. That's how you hold fast. So here it is, verse 32 of Hebrews 10. But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated. Illuminated. Otidzo. Enlightened. Divine passive. That's a passive verb. You didn't do this. You can't make sense out of the passive here any other way. You can twist it. You can stretch it. It's a divine passive. God did the illuminating because dead men can't illuminate themselves. They cannot. They cannot. Call to remembrance that day when someone else illuminated you and then opened the heart of the eyes of your understanding and you saw something for the first time. So he's going back to their conversion. Now I would just ask you, if you can remember, some of you were so young, you, you don't remember that day, and that's fine, right? Somebody asked me, well, how will I have assurance? I can't remember when I was baptized, I was so young. Your former baptism is not your assurance. It's how you are today with Jesus. Sometimes we rely on things in the past that we shouldn't be relying on. See? 
Somebody was baptized. I don't even remember it. Tell me now what you think about Jesus. There's your assurance. But for those of you who can remember, do you remember when you were illuminated? What was that experience? What confidence did it give you? You endured a great fight of affliction. So the illumination of seeing Jesus in a certain way produces a perseverance in provocation and afflictions. And the afflictions are highlighted in two categories. Verse 33, some of you were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions. People slandered you, they talked about you, and they hurt you. Afflictions, some way, they were in pain. The rest of you, partly, you became companions of those that were so used. So if, for example, verse 34, you had compassion of of me and my bonds. Some of them went to prison. The other saints went down and visited those and they encouraged them, and they brought what they needed while they were in prison. So they became a companion. They didn't experience the persecution in the same way, but they entered into it because they went right down to that jail, and they supported and strengthened them. All right? This was the confidence at the beginning when they were first illuminated that Hebrews 3 says, don't lose that. So this confidence produced endurance. Verse 34, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. When the gospel was preached and they were illuminated to the reality of the gospel, they immediately had hope of heaven. That in heaven there is enduring and abiding goods there. It's the same word, substance, for the word goods that were spoiled or taken away. When they identified with Christ, someone took their goods away. I don't know how, if they stole it, they damaged it, if they burned it, if they painted graffiti on their house, they did it because they were Christian. And they endured it. Why? Because when they were illuminated to the gospel, they saw a hope of goods in the future, in the resurrection, that will never perish. Verse 35, Do not cast away therefore your confidence, which has a great recompense of reward. Not the same Greek word, same meaning. Your confidence. So what was the beginning of their confidence? It was a hope in heaven that produced a joy in the present. They took joyfully the plundering, the loss of their goods, because they knew in heaven my choicest treasure lies. So what is the Hebrew writer distinctively saying in chapter 3? Hold fast to your joy in Christ. Right? If a hard heart is a heart that's dissatisfied with God, we saw that this morning, then what's a heart that's trusting God, treasuring God? A heart that is satisfied with all that God is and a heart that's finding joy in who God is, right? The Israelites had no joy. They were just complaining. So the beginning of our confidence, beloved, is looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. And the joy set before us, or them, what do they do? They took joy for the spoiling of their goods. They endured a great fight of affliction. And what do we do when we have joy set before us? We keep running the race with patience. 
looking to Jesus as the Savior and as the example, as the sustainer, as the lover of our souls. And we need that confidence to keep running. As soon as our hope shifts from something set before us to something set right in front of you, your running begins to flag. When your hope shifts from future glory to present day, it's going to affect how you run. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. Verse 6, Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence, there's the confidence again, and the rejoicing that comes from hope to the end. What's the writer saying? Joy that comes from hope sustains us in running the race to the end. Because Faith, we have learned again and again, is a treasuring, it's a seeing Jesus, it's being illuminated to who He is, that produces the joy of faith. Faith in its essence is joy, because how can you look at the doctor, the physician, who has all the answers for your sickness and your sin, and not find a smile come on your face when He walks in the room? You just know, He has all the answers, all the help, all the strength, everything you need is in Christ He brings a spiritual joy deep in the soul even when at times the face has no smile on it but nothing but tears running down your face. See. So what is exhortation ultimately designed to do? Keep us looking to Jesus. Keep us looking forward to the joy when what happens? The joys of this life are taken away. We all potentially have our hope shattered. We put our confidence in something in this world we know is going to be taken away. It's going to be taken away. We need one another to encourage, to look again. How often do we look away? To look again at the hope set before us. Look again at the joy in front of us. Look again at what awaits us in glory so that whenever God removes out from under us the things that we're finding hope in rather than fall out and fall away from God. We're there to help one another to do what? Regain our confidence, regain our hope, regain our strength in Christ to keep moving toward the goal of the mark of the high calling of God. Do you need this, beloved? I need it from you. We need it from one another. How easily we are shifted from our hope in Christ to the hope in things that cannot deliver. And now this text is telling us the aim of exhortation is designed by God to keep us on the pathway with Christ because God is going to use that in the perseverance and preservation of the saints because we are made partakers of Christ if we hold that confidence. And how is God going to help us to hold on to that confidence? We're going to exhort one another through preaching, through praying, through exhortation, through the Bible, through the Holy Spirit, through faith. All the ways God does, and now we learn one of those ways is your exhortation. May God bless us to be continually encouraging, supporting, strengthening, and exhorting one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for the help that you give. and We know that whatever means you may use that we comfort one another, strengthen and exhort one another. You're the God of all comfort. You're the God of all of our strength. 
And yet you just use instruments in your hands that uh, you use to be the delivery of the message and the encouragement. So just bless us to see ourselves in that light, to see that what we say when we use your word has value. Even if we don't see the impact immediately, we know you use your word, it will not return into you void, and we shall go out with joy, Isaiah 55 says. So Lord, bless us to trust your word in this way and be about exhorting intentionally one another and receiving that exhortation and being part of the fellowship that exists here for the glory and honor of your name, for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.